Welcome to the first of a series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches and I'm a historical fiction author and a specialist in the history of the early Tudors. My Tudor trilogy has become an international bestseller. These podcasts are about the stories I uncovered during my research. I was born in the town of Pembroke in West Wales and I've always been interested in the life of Henry Tudor who became King Henry VII, the first Tudor king, and he was born in Pembroke Castle in 1457. Like me, you were probably taught all about Henry VIII and his six wives, but very little about his father or his grandfather, Edmund Tudor. I checked with a teacher recently and asked her what the children have been taught now, and I found it still going on, as Henry Tudor is rarely mentioned, even here in Wales. The greatest asset of Pembroke is the magnificent medieval castle, so I decided to raise awareness of our Tudor heritage and began looking into the story of Henry's life. I found there's plenty of books about him, and they often contradict each other. Like anything, it depends on the point of view of the author, and some describe Henry as a miserly king. Others point out that he oversaw the longest period of peace for generations. And as I looked into the details of his personal letters and his papers, I realised Henry showed immense strength of purpose. He wasn't at all well prepared to be king. He'd spent most of his life in exile in Brittany, and he couldn't possibly have known much about how to run a country, particularly one divided by a civil war. I believe he took on the role reluctantly, but he brought peace to what was a very turbulent kingdom and he left the country in a significantly better state economically, socially and politically. Part of the problem I found with researching the early Tudors is that even I found some of the papers and books gave a very dry factual account which really obscured the character of Henry Tudor. But as a novelist, I saw an opportunity in the lack of historical fiction which offered a full account of his life, and I realised that I could bring his stories to life. There are some historical fiction authors who choose to embroider the facts while ignoring the ones that really don't suit them. And I think historical fiction has developed, like a lot of things, Readers now want to know that the facts they're being presented with are well-researched, and I like to make my books as factually accurate as possible. I I think there are enough myths surrounding the Tudor dynasty uh, without adding to them, so I like to make readers feel that they're learning about the world of the Tudors and perhaps want to go on and find out a bit more. And the true stories, of course, are every bit as amazing as anything I could invent, from the hard-to-believe idea of a Welsh servant marrying a queen to Henry Tudor's most unlikely victory at the Battle of Bosworth. And I began what became over four years of detailed research, studying original documents and visiting actual locations My travels took me all over the place. I went down the secret tunnels underneath the streets of Tenby, 
from where Henry Tudor and Jasper Tudor escaped pursuing Yorkists. And I also followed in his footsteps to the palace of the Duke of Brittany and found his chateau deep in the wilds of Brittany in the forest where Henry spent many years in exile. I also visited the secluded cove of Mill Bay, close to where I live now, and it's where Henry landed with his surprisingly small army to take on the might of King Richard III, and the impressive reenactment of the Battle of Bosworth uh, was something to be seen. I went to the anniversary reenactment and found I was one of the few cheering on the Tudors. Most of the people attending seemed to side with Richard III. It's another example of perhaps how little awareness there is of Henry's story. I'd soon collected far too much material for one book and I decided to write it as a trilogy with Henry being born in the first book, coming of age in the second and becoming King of England in the third. And throughout this series of podcasts I'll be talking about the stories I uncovered in that research and uh, discussing some of the myths that have grown up around the Tudor dynasty. In particular, I believe the contribution of Hollywood and these low-budget television series have given people really quite a distorted picture of Tudor life. But these were real people with the same strengths and weaknesses that we have today. I'll also be talking about the people, places and events that shaped the world of the Tudors, including the rise and fall of people like Thomas Wolsey and a look at their palaces, many of which are almost forgotten and sadly um, there's very little trace of them to this day. But some of them, like Hampton Court, uh, you can visit now. And I'm open to suggestions for further topics to include and I'm happy to answer any questions about the Tudors as fully as I can and you can contact me through my website, tonyriches.com. I started off this short introduction by talking about how I want to raise awareness of Henry Tudor in his birthplace of Pembroke. And I'm pleased to say that I was part of a small local group who raised funding last year for a life-sized bronze statue of Henry Tudor, which is now placed outside Pembroke Castle. So at last, his connection with the town can't be forgotten. And I'm hoping that through these podcasts and my books, I can raise awareness still further. Thank you for listening. The next podcast will be about the life of Owen Tudor, the Welsh servant who married a queen and founded the Tudor dynasty. I'd like to leave you with a short sample of the audiobook for Owen, book one of the Tudor trilogy. Thank you. Owen, Book One of the Tudor Trilogy by Tony Riches. Chapter One The Winter of fourteen twenty two. I tense at the sound of approaching footsteps as I wait to meet my new mistress, the young widow of King Henry V, Queen Catherine of Valois. Colourful Flemish tapestries decorate the royal apartments of Windsor Castle, 
dazzling my senses and reminding me how life in the royal household presents new opportunities. My life will change forever, if she finds me acceptable, yet doubt nags at my mind. The doors open, and Queen Catherine's usher appears. I have been told to approach the Queen and bow, but must not look directly at her or speak, other than to say my name, until spoken to. Taking a deep breath, I enter the Queen's private rooms, where she sits, surrounded by her sharp-eyed ladies-in-waiting. I have the briefest glimpse of azure silk, gold brocade, gleaming pearls, and a breath of exotic perfume. I remove my hat and bow, my eyes cast down to her velvet-slippered feet. Owen Tudor, your highness, keeper of your wardrobe. My voice echoes in the high-ceilinged room. One of her ladies fails to suppress a giggle, a sweet enough sound if you're not the reason for it. I forget my instruction and look up to see the Queen regarding me with confident ice-blue eyes. You are a Welshman. Her words sound like an accusation. My full name is Owen Apmerdith Ap Tudor. Although the English call me Owen Tudor, I come from a long line of Welsh noblemen, Your Highness. I regret my boast as soon as I say the words. Owen Tudor. This time her voice carries a hint of amusement. I put on my hat and pull my shoulders back. She examines me, as one might study a horse before offering a price. After years of hard work, I have secured a position worthy of my skills, yet it means nothing without the approval of the Queen. You look more like a soldier than a servant. The challenge in her words seemed to tease me. I have served in the King's army as a soldier. I feel all their eyes upon me. Yet you have no sword. Welshmen are not permitted to carry a sword in England, Your Highness. I am still bitter at this injustice. I remember the last time I saw her at the King's State Funeral at Westminster. Her face veiled. She rode in a gilded carriage drawn by a team of black horses. I followed on foot as the funeral procession passed through sombre crowds, carrying the king's standard and wearing the red, blue and gold livery of the royal household. You fought in France? With the king's bowmen, your highness, before I became a squire. The queen had none of the air of sadness I expected. Slim, almost too thin, her childlike wrists and delicate fingers are adorned with gold rings, sparkling with diamonds and rubies. Her neck is long and slender, her skin pale with the whiteness of a woman who rarely sees the sun. Her golden-brown hair is gathered in tight plaits at the back of her head, and her headdress fashionably emphasises her smooth, high forehead. King Henry V chose as his bride the youngest daughter of the man they called the Mad King, Charles VI. 
They said King Charles feared he was made of glass and would shatter if he didn't take care. Charles promised Henry he would inherit the throne and become the next King of France, and there were rumours of a secret wedding dowry, a fortune in gold. Barely a year into his marriage, the king left his new wife pregnant and alone in Windsor, 